we started the book and we went through the early chapters of Genesis, talked about the creation and the fall, talked about the flood. We talked about all those stories and, and, and really what, one of the things that we noticed along the way was that things were kind of going from bad to worse. And while there were redemptive moments along the way, that really is the story of the early chapters of Genesis. And then you get to chapter 12, and we ended at the beginning of chapter 12 where God was starting something new. He called Abram, uh, a man who was living in the northern part of modern-day Iraq, and was called out of there uh, to go to a promised land that he was going to be given. He was told that he would become a great nation, and God would bless him, and that by blessing him, God would bless the nations. And we ended by seeing Abram following God's call and going down to the promised land. And we're going to pick up there. And we're going to see one of the curious realities here is uh, that the life of faith has a lot of ups and downs. So we pick up in Genesis 12, starting in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt... The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that this was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, there's a lot of messy stories in the Bible, and this is certainly one of them. So let's pray uh, for, for wisdom. Lord, we do pray that you would open up your word. We know that you've given it to us not merely as a set of abstract truths, but as the story of your faithfulness, out of which those truths become clear. So even in this story, Lord... Would you help us to understand more of what you would have for our lives, and most of all, more of the riches of the grace of Jesus? We ask in his name. Amen. Well, I, uh, I talk often about how social media is, uh, is a bad thing, but there are some good things, like funny meme accounts that you get to follow. Uh, one of them on Instagram that I follow uh, is, is just highlights all these horrendous things in people's houses. So, uh, so sometimes it is just horrific decor that you know, should be in no one's house. Uh, like a, 
there's like a one of, one of them recently was a just a average size dining room, you know, middle class kind of house that had like five or six chandeliers in it. You know, so things like this. Some of these are just bizarre layouts that have come about, usually by some renovation. There's a surprising number of toilets that are also in bathrooms, which is difficult to explain. Uh, some of them are obviously mistakes, like plaster over electrical outlets and things like that that happen. And, uh, but probably the number one thing that pops up on this account are doors that people have to cut into because they installed some sort of fixture. They installed something and didn't do the calculations, right? They didn't <laughs> measure anything. And suddenly the door doesn't shut or open the right way. And, uh, and it apparently, to a lot of people, seems like the right answer to then just cut part of the door in order to make it work. We lived in Boston for a long time. There were a lot of bizarre things like that that you would see in people's houses uh, as people, rent people did renovations over the years. But I think that's kind of a metaphor for a lot of what it means to live by faith. Is that we are often focused on something that we think is going to be perfect. Maybe it's that new sink. It's, it's some aspect of our life, right, that we think this is, this is how I'm supposed to live my life. I'm going to get this one thing fixed. We obsess on it, but we don't take the whole of the, of the room into account. We don't take into account so many other things, right? And then we are spend our whole lives trying to account for it fixing up the room around us to accommodate this one thing we thought was so important. And that is what Abram's life is like. We're going to see this over and over again. When Abram, he will later be named Abraham, so I'm going to slip up on that probably inevitably at some point, but when Abram tries to take things into his own hands, which he does a number of times throughout his life, as we work through his life, we're going to see that that always works out badly, or potentially badly. But we're also going to see how God is faithful through all that. And that's really the story here. This is, this is a story about when our plans fall apart, when our schemes fail, and what we learn from it. And we learn about our presumptions, and we learn about God's provision. Those two things become clear when our plans fall apart, it exposes our presumptions and God's provision. So notice our presumptions. This is Abram. He has left. He's followed what God told him to do, right? And he goes down in, uh, in verses 4 through 9 earlier in this chapter to the promised land. And, you know, modern-day Israel, Palestine, uh, what was called Canaan at the time, right? So he, he's, he is in the promised land. He's doing what he was told until a famine arrives, and things get lean. And then he goes down to Egypt, which is a natural place to go in the ancient world, by the way. Uh, it is the nearest kind of superpower. Throughout most of ancient history, Egypt was very powerful. Uh, it went up and down, but they were usually the main regional power. And the Nile River has been for millennia one of the most reliable water sources 
uh, in the world. And so they always had grain. It made sense, but he left the promised land where he was told to go. And then they get there and he hatches this plan. Here's the funny thing about this plan. He does it again. We'll talk about chapter 20 down the road, but he, does a, he basically does the same plan here. Not just Abraham, his son Isaac, we're not going to cover it this fall, but in chapter 26, Isaac does the same thing with his wife. The same plan. So most commentators actually now think that this is probably a thing that they did regularly, because if it failed every time, you wouldn't keep doing it, but, but that they probably pulled something, you know, this kind of scheme off every, you know, in a lot of places that they went, and it probably worked. You know how in the, those Ocean's Eleven movies, you know, they, they always have these, like, phrases for the different con jobs that they do, you know, and you kind of feel like this is the sister scheme, right, that they, 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 know, they know the plan, this is what they're going to do, and it makes some degree of sense. This is what you have to understand, right? It's easy to think that they're being foolish, but it makes some sense, right? In verse 12, Abram tells us exactly what he's scared about, right? That he's going to be killed by somebody so that they can take Sarah as their wife. In, in the ancient world, right, there, there, there was not the rule of law as we think about it. There wasn't a, you know, strong policing and that sort of thing. So if you're in some strange area where your relatives are not around to guard the interests of the family, it's a dangerous place. Abram's not wrong about that. It's not unreasonable for him to be concerned about it. Although, notice how inevitable he believes it to be. This will happen if we go there. Abram's never been to Egypt. Abram doesn't know. So there is a reasonable risk, but he has blown it out of proportion. He is too concerned about it. And he comes up with this plan that unfortunately means only one person is going to be risking something, and that's Sarai, his wife. But you know the way Abram's thinking, right? I mean, this is going to work because if I'm your brother, then they're not going to see me as a threat. They're going to see me as somebody to negotiate with. You know, this is how marriages were done in the ancient world. And uh, they're going to negotiate with me. We'll kind of drag it out. And then when we're ready to go back, we'll just leave town and it'll be fine. That's the plan. He can drag it out if somebody's interested in Sarai. And then they'll get out of town when the getting's good. He'll be safe. And look, I mean, what's going to happen, right? I mean, what, is Pharaoh going to take interest in you? The odds seem very slim, right? But of course, the one person who could foil that plan is Pharaoh, and he takes interest. And they're telling a bit of a half-truth here. We find out later, again in chapter 20 when they do the similar scheme, that they, they are actually half-siblings. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. But, the, uh, but they're telling a half-truth here, right? They're, so Abram is convincing himself and his wife, we're not lying. We're just, just telling the part of the truth that is going to be helpful for us. 
You can see what's going on, right? And of course, the very, the one person that could foil the whole plan is the one person who gets involved, Pharaoh. You know, when we read Old Testament stories, a lot of biblical stories, but especially in the Old Testament, one of the vexing things often is that there's not commentary on what is right or wrong in the story immediately. Occasionally there is. I'm not, I mean, sometimes God directly intervenes. Sometimes a prophet is there to say something. It does happen sometimes. But a lot of these stories, there is no direct commentary right immediately in the situation to figure out what's going on. There actually is commentary. It's called the Mosaic Law. And it's expected that you know that law when you're reading this. After all, Genesis was written by Moses as a prologue to all of that. So, so even the readers of Genesis were expected to, to know the law. And here we can see this whole thing kind of unraveling, right? Uh, if you're wondering about the half-sister thing, that actually, that kind of thing is banned in the Mosaic Law. Um, so that shouldn't be done. But, the, uh, but you can see how Abram is beginning to think through this, right? I'm going to tell, we're going to tell part of the truth. No one can say we're lying. I'm just going to conveniently leave out another part of it. I can't imagine anybody ever doing that. Except everybody I know. Uh, but this, the more subtle thing that goes on is you can see that Abram is focused on the risk to his life and, you know, his self-interest, and that that has grown, right? So that what is a reasonable concern has grown to be an inevitability. A reasonable risk seems inevitable, right? But the one person that he's with, <laughs> let me know about, uh, she's going to shoulder the risk that's left over. But it's so minimal, right? It's so minimal. What could happen, right? Surely Pharaoh's not going to take interest. You get my point? What Abram's doing here, he has shifted the risk away from himself and onto his wife. However, you know, however minimal he thinks that risk really would be, he is still shifted. This is important to understand because this is a hallmark of bad moral reasoning. Is that I shift the risk away from me and onto others. Again, however much, however little we think it is, we're willing to let others take on the risk, which is, of course, opposite of what we're taught. I mean, a verse that we've thought about a lot over the last year and a half since the pandemic started is Philippians 2.3, and it stands in stark contrast to this. Paul in Philippians says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see how that's the exact opposite of what Abram's doing here, isn't it? And this is something subtle that all of us do. I mean, you know, it's not wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to think about risks that are involved in the decisions you're making and try to mitigate those. But when those become the primary focus, then we're willing to let others take on risk. 
we're willing to let others pay the price for it. And it is funny how often we do that, right? I mean, just think about the little white lie you tell. Who's going to get hurt? Well, I'll tell you who's going to get hurt. The person you're lying to. And we think maybe it doesn't have a bearing on their life, but of course that says a lot about what we think about their lives or how much we think about their lives. Good moral reasoning, on the other hand, because it is shaped by love, thinks about responsibility. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a moment in the Gospels, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all three of them, where one of the experts in the law comes to Jesus and says, kind of challenging him, what is the most important law? You, you might know that, you probably know the story, a lot of you. Right? And Jesus says, consistent with everybody else in Judaism at the time, in summarizing the law, he says, the, the first and most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But in the Gospel of Luke, that story continues. And the expert on the law asks Jesus, but who is my neighbor? You get what he's saying, right? Who am I actually responsible to? And do you know what Jesus' response is? Some of you might remember it. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says, you want to know who you're responsible to? And he tells a story. He tells a story about somebody who's injured. And all of the supposedly good people <laughs> pass him by. But the Samaritan, who's an outsider, who's despised by many in his day, helps the person in need. Now, there's a lot going on in that passage, and I'm not unpacking all of what's happening in that passage. But one of the clear ideas in it, right, is that we're responsible to those that are in need. That what Jesus thinks about when he thinks about what does it mean to love others, one really important aspect is who we're responsible to. That is a hallmark of starting to think as one who loves God and loves their neighbor, is we think less in terms of what am, what am I risking and more in terms of who am I responsible to. This is hard because as modern Westerners and especially as modern Americans, we, have a, we primarily think that our moral questions are about rights. And I'm not, look, I mean, the concept of rights actually does come out of our Christian heritage. I'm not necessarily criticizing the idea of rights in general, but that the way that we have talked about our individual choices is more about how I and nobody gets to tell me what to do. And of course, there's liberal areas that that gets emphasized and there's conservative areas that that gets emphasized, but we primarily talk about it in terms of you can't tell me what to do. But the way that the Bible thinks about the moral questions that we face is not who doesn't have claim over us, but it is what are the bonds that I have to others? Who am I responsible for? So interestingly enough, Martin Luther, you know, after nailing the 95 Theses 
on the door set off this firestorm, and he continued to write a number of books before they finally got around to having his trial and excommunicating him. And one of those books was called On the Freedom of a Christian. And right up at the beginning, he sets up what he, a paradox. He says, the Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. His point being, right, nobody gets to make a claim on your life. Nobody gets to tell you what's right or wrong except God. You're subject to no one in that sense. However, because God has called you to love your neighbor, you are bound to everyone. Does that make sense? So, of course, he's coming out of a context in which the church made up lots of rules. But he's saying the solution to that is not that we then be just lawless, but rather that we listen to God and we love our neighbors. And you know, we know this is true when you think about something like parenting, right? If someone, if a friend comes to you and is like, you know, my kids come to me multiple times a day asking for food. Who do they think they are demanding food from me? Right? We, we would rightly be like, uh, you're their parent. We know who you are. That's the deal, right? Like, that's the bond that you have as a parent is to provide for them. There's more to parenting than that, of course, but that's part of the deal, right? And so, we know that would be wrong. We know this in certain areas of our lives, but in many others, we are much more willing to calculate the risk rather than think about our responsibility, Let me give you a hard illustration here because it's one we've been living with for a year and a half. How do you think about your responsibility in the pandemic? Do you think about your responsibility in the pandemic? Now, I'm not going to stand here and say, thus says the Lord, these are the things you should do. The Bible doesn't tell us that exactly, and I'm not going to tell you that. But I will ask, and all of us need to reflect on, what does it mean, right? I mean, this is, this is not the two-week affair we thought it was when we started. Uh, it's increasingly becoming less of a pandemic and more an endemic disease, right? And we we're having to think through this. So this is the question, is what does it look like for me to be responsible to others in my life? And all of the stuff about, like, the polit- your political views and all that other stuff, okay, that's fine. That's an important question, but don't let that be a distraction from the question that you have to answer today. What will I do today to those I'm responsible to? Let's not get distracted. So often we use those other things to deflect the real moral question that we face is what does it look like for me to be responsible today? Underneath that calculation of risk versus responsibility, though, and this is so helpful to see, is often a presumption. A presumption that we can see all ends. That we can figure it out. 
We do this as a society, but we do this as individuals, right? We think, well, look, I'm, especially the more that we think about it in terms of risk, right? We think, okay, how am I going to mitigate these risks? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to, you know, you're anticipating what everybody else is going to do. Of course, we get so angry when they don't do the thing we thought they were going to do in response because we presume that we can see all ends. I mean, this is what Abram is doing, isn't it? He presumes that he can, he can anticipate the situation in a place he's never been. He believes that he can anticipate how they're going to respond. So there is a kind of self-deception at work, often in us, a delusion that we can anticipate or control what others are going to do. And the more that we think in terms of risk, the greater the temptation to buy into our own self-deceptions to be surprised and frustrated at others when they don't do exactly the thing we thought they were going to do. Because we bought into the lie that we understood everything. And this is why failure and loss are an opportunity. Why our failures and losses are often a turning point for people. Either to dive deeper into their own self-deception or to grow in humility. And it is the realization that we need to be thinking more about responsibility that brings up the, the greatest stumbling block in actually thinking well about our moral choices. It's the realization that if we actually love people that way, thinking about our responsibilities towards them, we might have to sacrifice or at least risk losing some things. That, that kind of love involves vulnerability. But I think when we name that, when we start to actually recognize what we're talking about, what we're talking about, that love requires sacrifice, we begin to see actually the beauty and the power of it. Because a moral life that's shaped by love in that way is shaped by the very character of Jesus. One theologian named Oliver O'Donovan puts it this way. He says, the true moral life of the Christian community is its love. And its love, this is it, its love is unintelligible except as participation in the life of the one who reveals himself to us as love. Get that? He's saying, look, our whole moral character is shaped by love, but the way we understand and know what love is, is through God and how he has treated us. Which means that this, this idea of sacrificial love for others that takes on responsibility rather than pushing off the risk on other people is like the character of Jesus. And it's beautiful because it is. But the end of the story is not Abram's failing. Did you notice that? This is a very poor fable. We're, we're often tempted to read biblical stories as if they are fables about what good people should do and how they're rewarded, or sometimes as a cautionary tale, right, about what happens to you 
when you make bad choices. This is a really bad one if you take it that way. Um, there is a, there's a, an online blogger, a guy called, he calls himself the friendly atheist. I read a bunch of his stuff. Uh, uh, and he's not so friendly. Um, he likes to highlight every worse news story that comes out about somebody in a church somewhere doing something. Uh, and he has a, a video series where he's been going through the Bible, and he starts with Genesis, and he reads it and offers kind of commentary. But it's telling, right, that uh, I watched the video on this <laughs> just to kind of see what he would take. And it's telling that he sees this as if this is supposed to be some kind of story about how people ought to behave and how they get rewarded. But that is decidedly not it. Right? Again, we have commentary in the law on what Moses is doing, and he's blowing it, or what Abram's doing, and he's blowing it, right? Instead, though, this isn't, but the comment is not, so judgment comes, but rather that God still provides, even though Abram is screwing up. Abram gets rich. Did you notice that in verse 16? Uh, we don't know how much he had at the time, but the clear insinuation here is that a big part of Abram's wealth growing comes from this situation. He goes down to Pharaoh, or he goes down to Egypt, and Pharaoh treats him as if he's his new son-in-law and gives him all this stuff. And then when the plague hits, presumably pretty quickly, uh, before anything compromising happens to Sarai, right? Like, he's out and takes everything with him. So he has gone down, hugely miscalculated, put his wife at risk, again, broken God's law in any number of ways, and then he leaves richer than when he came down. He behaves irresponsibly, but God is still seeing him through. And by the way, this whole story has a kind of foreshadowing effect of the story of the Old Testament, the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. Did you notice this, right? They, this is it in miniature. They, they go down to Egypt, taken advantage of, there's plagues. It's an important word. So blinking signs at you, right? It's plagues, and then they leave with the wealth of the people. That happens when the people of Israel leave during the Exodus. The difference, though, is that Abram is the one who's compromised here. But it is a story, regardless, like the big story of redemption, the Exodus, of God's faithfulness. No matter what, God is still faithful to Abram. And this is a theme throughout all of the Bible, and certainly it's very pronounced in Genesis, right? That God takes situations in which we are screwing up or when other people are doing evil to us, and he turns them for good. In fact, you get to the very end of Genesis, in the very last chapter, I mean, literally just a few verses before it ends, and you have the whole mess that has become, uh, you know, of Jacob's children, 12 sons, and all that they've done, and they've kind of made amends. And by the end, Joseph says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
I mean, it was a summary of a major theme throughout Genesis. And this is it, but the evil here is Abram's. But God is faithful. What do we do with that? This is a story about grace. About someone who is undeserving that God continues to be good to. That is the story of grace, isn't it? You see, the delusion of being wise or good or particularly savvy is not just foolish, it's dangerous. Our hope is that God doesn't deal with us as we deserve. This is just another one of those stories. Is that our hope is that God doesn't deal with us as we deserve. I mean, this is how Jesus operates, isn't it? When you think about it, who does Jesus have patience with? Those who know they don't deserve what is good. They know they deserve judgment in some way. The tax collectors who are extorting their neighbors, the prostitutes, right? This, these are the people that are attracted to Jesus. Who does Jesus have the harshest words for? But those who think they are good, those who think they are wise, who in their own eyes are better than their neighbors. That is the dangerous place to be. It is one thing to own our sin because that is the beginning of the possibility of grace. The worst thing to be is someone who thinks they're above it. And this is a great danger when we read a passage like this is we think, this is scandalous, what God is doing. And it is, right? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right? That the, the word of the cross is a stumbling block to those who are religious. Because can you believe it that God wouldn't judge somebody who's doing evil? but take that on himself. And it is foolishness to those who would think they are wise because they think they can plan everything. And God is saying, all your plans are failures. What matters is my act of grace. The gospel is foolish because grace is foolish. Because grace is about receiving what we do not deserve. Our failures then are key to growing in grace. Because it is only as we, the, our presumptions fall apart, as we start to be honest about who we are, what we have done, that we can understand God himself in the way that he is. You see, it is not that he is passing over sin, but that he is entering in to deal with it, to take the judgment we did deserve on himself. God's answer for a clear morality tale <laughs> is to enter in and die on the cross. There is a judgment for what Abram does, just as there is a judgment for what you are doing. And it's at the cross. That is God's scheme. It's not to try to 
do a risk assessment, mitigate all the possibilities, but instead to enter in and to give his life as a sacrifice for everyone who would believe. God isn't interested in doing risk assessment. He is interested in acting in love for you and me. God is not content to deal with us as we deserve, but instead acts in his grace. This is the scandal of the gospel. In a little story about a guy with a bad idea. Which means it is an opportunity for you and I to start to be honest about our own lives and our own bad ideas. And whether your failures or your losses or the sins that you've committed are fresh in your mind, new this week, or whether it is the stubborn old memory of things you've done, God's grace is still sufficient for you. That is the good news. When our schemes fall apart, it's actually an opportunity to understand what the way of God really is. See, when our schemes fall apart, we start to see that our only hope is the grace of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not deal with us as we deserve, but that you sent your Son so that when our schemes fall, have, have fallen apart, are falling apart, when they are shown for what they are, when we see them for what they are, we realize that our only hope is in you. Would you teach us to be honest about ourselves, about our calculations, about our delusions? But don't leave us there, Lord. Teach us about the abundance of grace that we have in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.